That's all I have for announcements. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Exodus chapter 6. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that Drew spoke to us out of this chapter. Um, and the, the genealogy in this chapter is, was a reminder to us of how all the events in the book of Exodus are linked to God's promises to be faithful to his people for all generations. And chapter 6 also serves as a transition into the next section in Exodus, which we are going to be getting into in these following chapters. And this next section is one that is describing a power struggle between the one true God, Yahweh, and the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh. So read with me, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 6. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, then it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I have several nephews who are well under the age of 10, and they are starting to like games and competitive activities. And so the other day, I challenged one of my nephews to an arm wrestling competition. Now, as you can imagine, I am pretty good at arm wrestling, but particularly so when my opponent is only three years old, right? When, when I am arm wrestling one of my nephews, I am the dominant force in that scenario, right? at least until they turn around 10, and then it's more up in the air as to who's going to win that match. But, but for now, in that competition, I am the sovereign force. I'm going to win that battle if I want to win it. 
But of course, I'm, I'm not going to go all out at first, right? Like I will, I will pretend to struggle against them for a little bit. I will pretend that they are, you know, kind of actually able to bend my arm down. They start using both hands against me. And I, I pretend for a little while that they actually have strength to defeat me. And if you are an outward observer, it might actually appear that there is some very real power struggle happening here. But that would all be an illusion. There is only one who is really dominant in this scenario, right? Now, now I share this story because it's a, it's a little illustration of what is going to be unfolding in the next several chapters in Exodus. We're going to see in our passage this morning that there appears to be a power struggle between the rulership of Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt and between God, Yahweh. And at times it even seems like there is a power struggle between God and Moses in his stubborn heart. But, what we, but in these coming chapters, they're going to demonstrate that God alone is sovereign over all the coming events. And he's going to make his power and his glory known at times through his mercy and at times through his judgment. But he will be known as the sovereign God. And that is our main point for this morning, that our God is sovereign over all things and that he will make his glory known. And we have three very simple points. Point one, God is sovereign over Moses. Point two, God is sovereign over Pharaoh. And point three, God is sovereign over all powers of evil. So first, point one, God is sovereign over Moses. The last three verses of of Exodus 6 says, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So what these verses do is that they take us back to the beginning of chapter 6, where God sees the afflictions of his people and he promises to deliver them. And so he tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and to demand that he release the Israelites. And and these verses are recalling this conversation that God has with Moses. Now, you have to love Moses' response to God's command here. God says, I'm going to deliver my people from slavery. And Moses, I'm going to use you to do that. And Moses says... I don't know, God, that does not sound like a great idea to me. He says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. How is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Now, basically, Moses is saying, I am not very elegant, Lord. And therefore, no one is going to listen to me, right? And this is the exact same excuse that Moses has been using before. We, we, we have seen this already. We've, we've seen God already have to bring correction to Moses because of his excuses. Back in chapter 4, God said to Moses, Is it not I who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Now therefore go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So God is bringing encouragement here to Moses, but he's not doing so by building up Moses' self-confidence. He's doing so by reminding Moses that he is the Lord, that he is sovereign over all the coming events, and he is sovereign over Moses' life as well. God knows the difficulty that Moses has in speaking. 
He knows that Moses is not capable on his own to do all that God requires of him. But that not ought to be the basis for Moses' confidence and obedience to God. Instead, God says, I am the one who will do this, Moses. You can trust in me. But still, as is so often the case with us, Moses is hesitant to obey God. And so God relents a little bit, and he says, okay, I'm going to send your brother Aaron, who is very elegant in speech, and he will speak for you, right? But even that wasn't enough, and still Moses doesn't want to listen to God, and that's what we see here in chapter 6. We see Moses continuing to throw these excuses at God, saying, Pharaoh is not going to listen. Now, I don't know if these verses are supposed to be funny or not, but, but I do find his response to be a little amusing in its irony, right? Moses is complaining to God that Pharaoh is not going to want to listen to God, right? But in this moment, it's actually Moses who's not wanting to listen and to be obedient to the Lord. Moses is saying, Pharaoh's not going to want to obey you, God, and so either am I, right? And I imagine that, that God in his patience is saying, Moses, let's focus right now on the fact that you yourself are refusing to be obedient. We've been over this. I'm going to help you. I'm going to deliver my people. You know my power. Now go, Moses, follow me, be obedient. But Moses is hesitant. And the, the irony of Moses' response might be a little amusing to us, but the, the amusement of it, I think, kind of goes away a little bit when we remember that we are just like Moses. Right? It, it can be easy to, to hear stories in the Bible and to, to see these characters in Scripture and, 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 and critique them, critique Moses for his hesitation to follow God, but, but aren't we just like the characters in the Bible? Don't we ourselves come up with so many reasons why we should not obey God, why we should not trust him after all. And, and if we were Moses, would we obey God in this moment? Would we, in our own weakness, be willing to go before Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world at the time, who had enslaved an entire people and demand that he release them? Maybe not, right? Probably not. I know that, that I certainly struggle to obey God with far smaller things than this task, right? And I imagine that, that many of us here, all of us, can relate to me in that, right? Often, the struggle in the Christian life is not knowing what God wants us to do, it's being willing to obey Him. There are many times in our lives where there are these, these little power struggles in our hearts where we know what God calls us to, but we are hesitant to obey him. We think, I, I don't know if that's going to be worth it, right? There's a lot of unknowns here. I'm not sure if I'm going to like how all of this is going to turn out. I don't know if I want to love that person. I don't want to honor my parents. I don't want to fight against this sin in my life. I don't want to humble myself. Being obedient to God sounds difficult. But notice here 
And church, this is, this is so important this morning. Notice here that God does not promise Moses that this obedience is going to be easy. He didn't promise that this coming conversation with Pharaoh was going to go well. In fact, he says Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. He is not going to be obedient to me. Throughout these chapters, we see again and again Pharaoh refusing to listen to the commands of God spoken through Moses. Twenty times, Pharaoh's heart is hardened against the commands of the Lord. And we'll talk more about this in our next point. But Moses is given a task that he is going to be unsuccessful at most of the time. And part of what we continue to see here is that Moses is not the one in control. Moses is not going to deliver the people. God is going to do that. Moses' job is not to get results. His job is to be obedient to God. See, the Bible has a very different way of thinking about success when it comes to following God. It's obedience, not results, that we are responsible for. And this is a great comfort to us when God calls us to do something that we think we are not qualified to do, whether that's parenting, whether that's evangelism, or fighting against sin in our lives, or being pastors. Our job is not to save people. Our job is not to raise perfect children. Our job is not to make the church be what we think it ought to be. Our job is not conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. Our job is to walk in obedience to Jesus and to trust him with the results. And even if these things don't turn out the way that we wish they did, that does not mean that we are failing in our job and in our obedience. When it comes to parenting or doing ministry or investing in the lives of others or or any other form of obedience, the results are always beyond human control. Let me say that again. When it comes to parenting or doing ministry or investing the lives of others or any form of obedience to Christ, the results are always beyond human control. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And church, there is great freedom in these truths this morning. And there was great freedom for Moses in that. His task was difficult, but he was not responsible to convince Pharaoh. He was not responsible to set Israel free. His only responsibility in that moment was to trust in the Lord and to obey and to see what God alone would be able to do. And it's in this way that God shows himself to be sovereign over the life and the words and the obedience of Moses. And it's in this way that God alone receives the glory as our story continues to unfold this morning, which leads us now into chapter 7 and to our second point this morning, which is that God is sovereign over Pharaoh. 
Verse 1 of chapter 7 is a, is a continuation of this conversation between God and Moses. And the content of this conversation intensifies as it points not only to God's sovereignty over Moses, but to God's sovereignty over Pharaoh. Verses 1 through 5 says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. To summarize here, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and to demand that he release Israel. But Pharaoh is not going to listen because his heart is going to be hardened. And and because of this, God is going to bring judgment on Egypt until they are forced to release um, the Israelites. And through this, the Egyptians will come to know the power and the glory of God. And these five verses, they they act as as a little snapshot of the coming chapters and as a summary of the main theme of Exodus. The the book of Exodus is seeking to answer the question, who is Yahweh? Who is the God of Israel? Yes, this book is about Exodus, of, of the Israelites. It's about their freedom from captivity. It's about God's rescue. But the central theme of this book is God's determination to make himself known, both to Israel and to the surrounding nations. And that is what God is going to do through Moses. Verse 1 says, See, I made you like God to Pharaoh. Now, this does not mean that Moses has suddenly become a divine being. What it means is that Moses is going to act as God's representative to Pharaoh. Moses is going to make demands on behalf of God. He's going to predict these coming plagues that are going to happen later in the book. And through Moses, God is going to show his sovereign power over Pharaoh. See, in Egyptian culture at the time, Pharaoh would have been seen as a god. He would have been seen as divine. He, he thought of himself, and Egyptians would have thought of him as a, as a physical manifestation of deity. And so Pharaoh considered himself to be the one who was sovereign over the events in Egypt. And he is thinking that Moses this shepherd from the wilderness is going to show up and he's going to put Moses in his place, right? But God, Yahweh, the true God, has other plans. And through Moses, he is going to show that he himself is the one who has sovereignty over Pharaoh and over Egypt. Verses two through three, you shall speak all I command of you, And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Now here we we come to an idea in the Bible that's going to require some of our attention this morning. And that is the idea of, of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's an idea that communicates something profound 
about how God relates to evil in this world and the sinful hearts of mankind. It's also an idea that, that brings up lots of questions for us, right? What does it mean that God would harden Pharaoh's heart? And is it, is it, is this something that, does it mean that, that God has caused Pharaoh to sin? Does it, does it mean that God is unjust or that he is the source of evil? And what does this say about the free will of humans, right? And we, we could easily spend an entire time talking just about these questions this morning. But, but for now, let's just take a few minutes to consider how this story helps us to answer some of these questions. Throughout the story of Exodus, there are 20 times in the Bible that speaks to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In different times, the author uses several different Hebrew words um, to talk about this, but, but all of them have to do with the idea of Pharaoh being stubborn and resistant to the commands of God. And then there are different ways that this story talks about this in the Bible. Some of the times it says that God was the one that hardened Pharaoh's heart. Other times it says that, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Other times it speaks about Pharaoh's heart just being stubborn and resistant all on its own from the beginning, right? But, but in all of these instances, the main thing we see is that God is sovereign over the heart of Pharaoh. John Cured, who is a, um, a scholar of the Old Testament, writes this. He says, ancient Egyptian texts teach the heart is the essence of the person the inner spiritual center of the self. Pharaoh's heart was particularly important because the Egyptians believed it was the all-controlling factor in both history and society. It was further held that the hearts of the gods Ra and Horus were sovereign over everything. Because Pharaoh was the incarnation of these two gods, his heart was thought to be sovereign over creation. And so God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is making a theological point. He is proving that he alone is sovereign over all things. Nothing is outside of the purpose of his will, not even the wicked heart of the great king of Egypt. And I don't know that we should read too much into the different ways that the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is talked about in these chapters. Sometimes it's God doing the hardening, sometimes it's Pharaoh hardening his own heart, but the, the point being made throughout this story is that Pharaoh's heart is wicked and he has no inclination to obey God. And yet, God is sovereign to use the stubborn resistance of Pharaoh for his own purposes. He works in such a way that results in a further hardening of Pharaoh's heart so that when God ultimately breaks Pharaoh's will and frees the Israelites, his power and authority will be seen in greater ways. Because the more that Pharaoh and the Egyptians resist God and tighten their grip on their oppression of Israel, the greater will God's power be seen when he breaks his enemies and frees his people. This, this battle between the heart of Pharaoh and the commands of God is a battle that God is orchestrating in order to demonstrate that he alone is sovereign over all that is happening. And you may ask, is God unjust in acting sovereignly over the heart of Pharaoh. But let's not forget that, that Pharaoh is a wicked ruler and was from the beginning. 
he has enslaved an entire group of people, right? He has given over to pride in his own heart, considers himself to be divine, and has rejected the true God. Right? So, so Pharaoh's heart is rebellious and unbending from the beginning. Think, think, of, a, think of a steel beam, right? And a, a steel is unbending. It is resolved to not be moved by anything. In fact, it would take a great amount of effort and heat and manipulation in order to mold steel into something useful, right? Or, or think if, if you have kids, think of Play-Doh, right? If you take Play-Doh out of its con- protective container, it does not take long before it becomes completely unusable and rock solid, right? And of course, these are not perfect illustrations of the human heart, but the point is that the, the human heart is rebellious by nature, Apart from God's grace, we will turn to wickedness. Pharaoh and those who follow him are evil. Their hearts are hard from the beginning. And while God is sovereign to steer their hearts and the actions of those who are evil, he does not produce that evil in them. We alone are responsible for the wickedness in our hearts. We alone are responsible for our rebellion against God. And apart from the grace of God, our hearts are hard and we will refuse to acknowledge him as God and as the Lord of our lives. So God does not bear the guilt for our rebellion against him. James 1:13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, for I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So while God is sovereign over the evil in Pharaoh's heart, while he is sovereign over the actions of the Egyptians, he is also just and good and right in all of his ways. In fact, Paul, in the book of Romans, speaks specifically to the coexistence of these two realities as he reflects on this very story that we're reading here in Exodus. Romans 9, 14 through 21 says, what shall we say then to this question that we're asking right now? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And now we, we may read that and we, we may be tempted to find that answer unsatisfying. We, we may want to, to look to the idea of man's free will to resolve all the tension in this story in Exodus. But instead, we are reminded of the finiteness of our minds. And how we are not in a place to stand in judgment over God. We are reminded that God is just and good and righteous in all of his ways. And while he ordains all that happens, he himself does not sin. 
And he is not morally responsible for the sins of Pharaoh or for our sins as well. The main point of these verses is not exactly how Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither Exodus nor Romans 9 are are trying to fully articulate the philosophical complexities of, of God's sovereignty and our free will. There is some degree of mystery that remains here. At least there, there is so in my mind. But the, the main point being made here is that God's purposes cannot be thwarted by the evil intentions of man. In fact, he is able to use the rebellion of Pharaoh for his glorious purposes and for the good of his people. As we continue in this chapter, we will see that God is not only sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, but that he is sovereign over all evil in this world. And that leads us to our third and our final point, which is God is sovereign over all powers of evil. I saw this movie the other day. It was a, it was a war movie. And in this movie, the, the hero defeated his enemy army by, by rushing into the front lines of the enemy and stealing one of their tanks. And he takes their tank and he turns it and he begins shooting down other enemy tanks. And, and so he, he wins this decisive battle, not just by defeating the enemy, but by turning the enemy's weapons against them. And in this scene from this movie, it's a, it's a little illustration of what we're going to see here in verses 8 through 13, where there is this dramatic display of God's might, not only over Pharaoh, but also over the very real powers of evil that are behind his actions. Verses 8 through 13 says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went down to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, church, this is a strange story, right? Pharaoh is sensing that his sovereignty is about to be challenged, so he decides that he's going to put Moses and Aaron to the test and prove that they do, in fact, have authority to challenge him in this way, right? So he sends his representative and Moses sends his representative and they throw down their walking sticks and they turn to snakes and a bunch of them are eaten, right? It's a a strange story, right? But if you consider Egyptian culture and religion of the day, you'll see that this moment actually has great significance. In the Bible times, the Egyptians both feared and worshipped snakes. They had temples built in honor of the snake deity, right? And they, had, and they believed that Pharaoh, who they believed to be God, was filled with the power of this snake deity. If you remember your Egyptian history, 
Uh, King Tut is probably the pharaoh that you remember. He's the only Egyptian pharaoh that I ever remember for some reason. But, but, it, but you remember King Tut, and we've, we've seen pictures of the crown that he wore, right? I think it's up here, the crown he wore or the mask that went over his tomb. And you'll see that they all bore the crest of the snake on the crown, right? And this associated pharaoh with the deity of the serpent goddess, right? And in Egypt, when, when a new pharaoh would take the throne, he would put on that royal crown with the crest of the serpent, and he would say these words. He would say, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of the spirits, right? They took serpents really seriously in Egypt, right? And so the serpent was a symbol of Pharaoh's perceived sovereignty and divinity in Egypt. And of course, throughout the Bible, even as far back in Genesis, we see serpents being associated with the the power of Satan and demonic influence, right? Even in Genesis chapter 3, Satan is referred to as a serpent. And this imagery is carried all throughout the Old and the New Testament. And so what's happening in chapter 7, it's not just magicians pulling off these, these cheap tricks, right? This is a battle between the sovereignty of God and the demonic powers at work in this world. And it seems that it was very real. Pharaoh's magicians are actually able to turn these staffs into snakes. We, we aren't, they aren't just playing tricks. We're, we're not exactly sure how they're able to do this, but it seems that there was a demonic power behind his magicians enabling them to do what they were able to do. And God is sovereign over that power. And he demonstrates this not only by defeating them, but by using their own weapons against them, making this strong statement that not only Moses and not only Pharaoh, but also Satan is under God's control. Verses 8 through 12, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And again, some some understanding of Egyptian culture here helps to understand the significance of this. The Egyptians believed that that to eat something or to consume something was to acquire its powers. So by consuming the serpents, Aaron's staff was not simply destroying their power and authority, but was claiming that all the power and authority belonged to God. The obvious implications here is that the Lord of Israel is also the Lord of Egypt. Not Pharaoh, not Satan, but Yahweh. That's the great theme of Exodus. That's the great theme of the Bible. The story of Exodus is God's triumph over evil in the deliverance of his people. But here's the thing for us this morning, church. The the triumph of Exodus would not be God's greatest triumph. The the swallowing up of the serpents in this story is, is a foreshadow of a far greater moment of God's victory over evil. 
The moment that all of Scripture ultimately is pointing towards when Christ would defeat evil by laying his life down on a cross for us. That was the day when our great enemy, death, was turned on itself and against Satan. The the power struggle between God and Satan in the story continues all throughout the Bible into the, the New Testament, into the Gospels from the very beginning. We see Satan opposing Jesus. Even from Jesus' birth, Satan used the power of Pilate to send soldiers to seek out and to kill Jesus as a baby. Right? There was demonic activity at work throughout the ministry of Jesus opposing him. Satan himself personally opposed Jesus in the wilderness. The power of false religion was used to accuse Jesus of heresy. And finally, at the end of Christ's life, God allowed Satan to strike the heel of Jesus as he was crucified on a cross. But that would turn out to be Satan's biggest mistake and at the same time, God's greatest triumph. Because it was Christ dying on the cross for our sins that we were delivered from death's power. Jesus has disarmed Satan's authority, putting him to shame, using his own weapons against him, defeating him on the cross and freeing us from darkness. And so now we, who were like Satan, who were like Pharaoh in the hardness of our heart and our rebellion against him, who were dead in our sins, Paul says God has now made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our rebellion, all our obedience, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And then, in another demonstration of God's power over all things and over sin and death, Christ rose from the grave, securing our eternal life. And now death has been swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over all. That is what the Bible is about. That is what the story of Exodus is about. God is sovereign over Moses. He says, go. And Moses says, I don't think so, God. And God says, I think you will. And I will be with you. And I will use you to deliver my people. And Moses goes, and God is true to his word. God is sovereign over Pharaoh. He hardens his heart so that he will not listen. He steers the rebellious acts of Pharaoh for his own purposes. And in doing so, his glory is seen in the the judgment of Egypt and the deliverance of Israel. And God is sovereign over Satan and evil. The greatest of Pharaoh's magicians are unmatched. The serpents are swallowed whole foretelling of that day when Christ would crush the head of the great serpent, Satan, and free us from darkness. And God is sovereign over our lives as well, and our own hearts, and our own parenting, and our own ministries, and our own salvation. 
He is sovereign over all. That is the story of the Exodus. That is the story of the gospel. And our response, church, our response this morning must be to acknowledge God's lordship over our lives. Let us not harden our hearts against him. But instead, let us acknowledge him as our savior, as our king, as our Lord. Our God is sovereign over all things. He will make his glory known. And church, would his glory be known in our lives and in our church, not through judgment, but through life and joy and obedience and worship. Amen. Let me pray.